FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here. And joining us in studio, it's infectious disease specialist with the University of Vermont Medical Center, Dr. Tim Leahy. Good morning, Dr. Leahy. Good morning. It's nice to have you back on the show. It's been a while. Yeah, which I think is—I uh, think your your listeners will agree—is is good news. Uh, less less bad news to talk about. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the, the number of things to talk about now, though, still. And one thing I want to ask you is: people now look back at this at the pandemic and the vaccines, and some people claim that the vaccines did not work because there were people that took the vaccines and still got the, you know, got COVID nineteen. Same as people taking the vaccine and getting the flu, right? I think I I would have said that in the past, but I learned something through the pandemic. So how does that work? It's not it's never been a guarantee, right? That if you get the flu shot or you get the COVID nineteen shot or the booster, that you will not get it. Yeah, this is something you get used to in in, in medicine. Um, but I think as you said, the the whole world got a real close up look at how this thought process works. That, you know, nothing we have is perfect and everything that works has some side effect. And the trick is to find a medicine or a vaccine that on average does way more good than it does uh, bad. And so the COVID vaccines are, are, you know, one of the best examples of that, where it's very clear that they do an incredible job of protecting people from severe disease that hospitalization rates and death rates are just massively lower with the original vaccine series as well as with the boosters and our high-risk people, particularly people who are over 65. And they do it, generally speaking, incredibly safely. You know, most of us just had muscle aches and maybe a low-grade fever and felt crappy for a day, and then you're good. There are rare, uh, more severe side effects uh, that, uh, you know, are well-studied and characterized now but those are vastly outweighed by the death toll that's reduced by the vaccines. The trick is that when I line up to get a vaccine, you know, I don't know, what am I going to get? Am I going to get, you know, was I never going to get COVID in the future anyway? And so those muscle aches and fever are worse than the benefit. Uh, You know, and and so everybody does that math a little bit. The the way I add it up is that, man, that is such a contagious uh, virus that basically everybody gets it at some point along the way. And I would rather have a cold and I don't mind, you know, that, than getting in the hospital. I'm 55. And so I, you know, I'm a little at risk of more severe disease, not much, but a little. And I, so I'd rather just have it be a cold and I'm willing to pay the price of, you know, uh, maybe a day of muscle aches and the inconvenience of having to go get it. Um, and, and I think questions like these are exactly the questions people should ask because everybody has to make the same kind of decision. Like, What's right for me and my health, and how do I stay safe? The people I care most about are those at high risk, people who are immune compromised and older, who were largely who ended up in the hospital. And I want them uh, to get their vaccines so that, uh, you know, they can continue living another day. And you said you're 55. So essentially, is it every year older you get, you're a little bit more at risk? Yeah, that's right. You know, the, the risk of severe disease you know, between being, you know, whatever, between like one year old and in your 40s is pretty slow, assuming you don't have some immune compromising health condition that puts you at risk. 
But uh, the older we all get, the little bit of an edge goes off of our immune system and the more at risk we are of severe disease. So despite what some people say, you, you still contend that these vaccines were very successful. Um, they're always, they're always going to be with any vaccine. There's going to be some um, issues. And, and they were never intended, no vaccines ever meant to be that if you take this, it's guaranteed you won't get it. It reduces the, the risk that you'll get it. And then, is this correct also, it reduces, if you do get it, in most cases it will reduce the, the severity of the symptoms. Yeah, the way to think of it is along a timeline that in the first couple of months after you get the vaccine, your likelihood of getting infection is lower and your likelihood of severe disease and death is, is a lot lower. That protection from infection wears off pretty quickly. So by three, four months nowadays, the, you know, you, you could still get infection pretty easily. It looks like that, you know, the virus changes enough and the, the kind of immunity that you get from the vaccine from just getting infected goes down substantially. So that by six months, most people have about the same uh, likelihood of getting infected. That protection from severe disease, though, lasts for a long time. And we actually haven't seen the end of the tail of that uh, protection. Um, my guess is we're going to get into a place where after a certain number of shots, most people have enough protection from severe disease and death that, like, they're done or they need it refreshed, you know, infrequently. But for some people, particularly as you get older or immune compromised, the, that, that immune memory sort of wears off. And so those boosters might remain necessary for a long time. And I'm sort of waiting to hear, like, on what year do we sort of say, ah, it doesn't have to be like the flu shot and you can space it out more? Or is it essentially going to be like a flu shot where enough people benefit from getting it yearly? And that's uh, not something we're going to know for years. I was going to I'm, I'm encouraged that you said that there is they, they still haven't figured out the 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 tailing off of of the initial uh, vaccine because it does really reduce if you get covid it really can reduce the severity of it and so it's still working uh even if you haven't gotten the latest booster they're they're still showing data that says it, it's still helping mitigate it yeah and that's that's the the big thing that's essentially being studied right now is that you can see that there is that longer lasting protection from the most severe forms of disease. And so that's great. We also see the virus mutating so that that protection is a little bit smaller over time, just because what your immune system can recognize a little different from what you might encounter, not no protection, just a little less than you might've had, sure. you know, six months out from your shot. And, uh, and, and so the, these new boosters sort of tune your immune system to whatever is circulating but, you know, it's, it's not quite as mute, it's not mutating as quickly. And, and those prior shots look like they're helping provide a little more protection over time. And, and so every time a new booster comes out, we look and sort of say, well, so what, what's it really do? How much less of yeah. the severe disease do you get? And it's still protecting particularly older people from bad stuff. But one of these years, maybe we'll just sort of say, Good enough. That's what yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah. And as the data comes in, we'll see. Yeah. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning, Dr. Leahy. Could you speak to the new vaccine for RSV, which I understand is not quite as uh, sort of fatal as COVID can be, but, but certainly can be problematic. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's been, you know, it's an amazing year where nowadays we have these three respiratory virus related vaccines to consider getting, depending on our age and all that other stuff. Um, so we've we've had flu every year for a while, and so uh, flu shots are coming back this fall. 
there's the COVID update uh, this fall, and then newly there's the RSV vaccine. So RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. And this is, a, a, for most people, also a cold virus, kind of like coronaviruses can be. Uh, in most adults, it just kind of gives you the sniffles and you move along and you may not have even known that you had it. We've known for a long time that babies get severe disease from RSV. And so through my medical training, I remember seeing a bunch of kids on oxygen or even mechanical ventilators because of RSV. And we just didn't have a heck of a lot we could do for them. And so we would just provide support until hopefully they got through the hospital and were, were better. What we did not appreciate super well, because we didn't really test adults for RSV, was that uh, older adults can get RSV and get a little bit more severe disease that looks a bit like uh, COVID. But as you said, it's not, there's not nearly as many people who get RSV disease at uh, older ages. So uh, just to think about sort of like hospitalization numbers in the United States, you know, every year there's several thousand uh, adults will get, uh, usually over 60, will get hospitalized with uh, COVID disease. Um, so, you know, that's an important number. I care about those several thousand people. But at the peak of the uh, COVID um, hospitalization rates back in January of uh, 22, the number of people, adults in the hospital was a little bit over 140,000 uh, each day. So it's, you know, RSV is a much smaller thing than COVID. But hey, uh, if I could protect those thousands of adults and those babies, uh, I would do it. Now, did the the production, I guess it's, it's mRNA technology they used for, for COVID, is that what now has, is that what they're using for RSV? So are we seeing other vaccines kind of come out of it now? Is that what that, is that the link? The RSV vaccine is not an mRNA vaccine, but I, but I think you're right that we are going to see some additional vaccines that are coming out. They're, they're studying flu shots and other kinds of shots that are mRNA vaccines. Um, but the RSV vaccine is a little bit, um, I don't want to say older because it's still pretty high tech, but it's not that it's uh, not the same mRNA, mRNA technology. Yeah. Gotcha. All right, well, we're going to take a quick two-minute break, and uh, the McKenzie Country Classic. It's the Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. We are back, and we're continuing our, our discussion with Dr. Tim Leahy, infectious disease specialist. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the Morning Drive. Hi, good morning, doctor. You know, I'm 75 years old, doctor, and when I was growing up, uh, you get a vaccine for polio, mumps, or chicken pox, and, and nobody ever got the disease. It was always, I don't know anybody who ever got those diseases after you got that vaccination. And suddenly in 2021, they changed the definition of vaccination, and it just now says it's the, the act of introducing a vaccine into the body to produce protection from a specific disease. It used to say to prevent the disease. So I'm just kind of leery of why would you change the definition of vaccination in 2015? And why are we constantly having to get more vaccination shots for the same flu? I haven't, I, I, I'm 75 years old. I, I, I take vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc and a multivitamin. I haven't had the flu and any flus in 25 years and I'm not vaccinated. I mean, I just don't understand why this is obviously a human trials thing instead of a clinical trials thing. And we don't even have the results of the human trials and we're still recommending these things. 
So I let me let me help you it. with some facts. Um, uh, one, nobody has changed the definition of vaccine. I'm not sure where you heard that it was changed in 2021, you first said, or 2015 in the second case, but it's the same. You are right, though, that there are some vaccines that last longer than others, and that, that's a clear pattern. It turns out that if you get vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella, or against hepatitis B is another example, your likelihood of uh, getting those things is incredibly low. Part of the reason why uh, uh, the likelihood is really low is because there are good vaccines. The other reason is uh, because those infections are not nearly as common to be exposed to. You know, they're just, uh, there are measles outbreaks occasionally or mumps outbreaks, but, you know, they're very local. And so your chances of being around them are also low. And that contributes to why you don't hear so often about those things happening. Um, but ever since we've had vaccines, we've also known that some infections are not totally uh, taken away by them. So tuberculosis is a good example. There's a vaccine that most countries in the world vaccinate all babies uh, uh, with called the BCG vaccine that lowers the likelihood that kids are going to get tuberculosis. So it's a good vaccine and saves lots of kids' lives, but unfortunately it wears off so that by adulthood, uh, people can get tuberculosis again. Uh, we don't do that in the United States because tuberculosis is uncommon enough that it's not really worth it. Uh, so so it just depends on the infection, how well you get protected from it. And it turns out that really highly contagious respiratory infections are in the camp of things that it's just harder to, to uh, get perfect protection from. That's why ever since there has been an influenza vaccine, you've needed to get an update from it because the, vac the virus changes so that the vaccine doesn't match anymore. Uh, and COVID's a great example of that where it does provide protection. Uh, you, you misstated something that, that you know, the studies aren't done. It, it turns out that the studies are uh, extensively done. <laughs> it, it's remarkable how much information is in the scientific literature. And I think that's one of the challenges is that uh, if if you um, uh, don't have the time to dig into the scientific literature, it's easy to find a web page that'll tell you malarkey. Uh, but there are many, many, many randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials now showing that COVID vaccines lower death rates, lower hospitalization rates, and for a short period of time, lower infection rates. Uh, it's also true that influenza shots protect you from uh, severe disease if you're at risk. So I would just um, step back and sort of say, hey, let me make sure I get my data from a good source. And it turns out that vaccines are vaccines, and they have been that way for decades, and they work. Dr. Leahy, can you remind me what the controversy was about the measles vaccine? I was in the legislature, and I can't remember if it was 10 years ago or so, and there was a controversy. I think it was a national controversy about uh, requiring the measles vaccines. Yeah, that's right. So one of the big, you know, so most vaccines are something that you get or don't get as a personal decision. You know, you just uh, um, decide uh, how you want to make that health decision. And we all make decisions like that about vaccines or smoking or exercise or diet, whatever it is. And that's generally fine. One of the, the complexities of policymaking around uh, vaccines for highly transmissible infections is that my decision to get vaccinated or not might affect somebody else. So measles is a good example. This is a very contagious respiratory infection that causes a rash and has a high death rate that was a major problem uh, earlier in the 20th century. 
but has uh, now been mostly wiped out by vaccines. But every once in a while, you do get outbreaks where a little pocket of, of, uh, of, of folks who are m- more unvaccinated than the average population will get exposed and boom, you get all these cases. And so, so um, many schools will require measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination to make it so that they're not one of those schools that has the outbreak. And they do that to protect everybody in the school. Uh, but that naturally has parents asking, well, gosh, what do I think about being required to do that? And different parents react different ways. Some will say, well, that's great. I like going to a school that's safe. I don't want my kid to get measles. Great. I, I know these things are well proven to work. Others will say, yeah, but it's my decision. And I don't like somebody else, you know, uh, forcing me to do this. And I think it's important to say, you know, hey, you know, we all have uh, tickets uh, that we pay for in order to get into a movie. You've got to pay the price to get in. And this is one of those things where if you want access, access to a service, sometimes you uh, uh, lose a little bit of uh, autonomy. Was that the vaccine where some parents were worried that it was uh, causing autism? Yeah, there was this myth that came out um, that uh, that some that the MMR vaccine was associated with uh, autism. It turned out that the paper that uh, was fueling that was falsified, and it's been widely repudiated in scientific circles. But sadly, I think uh, sort of the tail end of that myth has sort of played out, and and you know I think there's understandable skepticism about the role of industry in making vaccines. You know, big companies are involved here and big money is in there. And I think people naturally wonder, well, gosh, am I getting bamboozled here? And I would say, uh, yeah, I think you should be skeptical of those, those big businesses, not to say that business is bad, but you know, their, their motivation is to make money first and maybe to take care of you second. And so you should look and see, am I getting bamboozled or not? But I would say maybe the most convincing thing is look at the percentage of doctors and nurses who go and get these vaccines it's like 99% that we vote with our bodies that I keep an eye on industry and I trust that these vaccines work. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, uh, Dr. Leahy, I plan on getting uh, three vaccine or uh, three shots, my usual flu and whatever COVID booster and the RSV. I was going to ask you about that, but the other caller got into it. Now is, what are your thoughts on, getting all three of those shots at the same time because I have gotten both the flu and the COVID booster before at the same time with no, you know, side effects. So what are your thoughts on getting all three at the same time? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. Thank you. Um, You know, uh, I, I, you know, I think there's a little flexibility in there so you can sort of decide based on what's most convenient for you, but I can help sort of unpack what might go into the thinking so we, we think it's safe to get those vaccines together. Each vaccine, as you said, is likely to, you know, maybe give you a low-grade temperature, make you feel achy, sore arm. Maybe. You know, they don't always. They, I would say usually don't, actually, is what the numbers show, but, but often they do. If you get three vaccines, then your likelihood of getting those symptoms is going to be, you know, three times higher. And, and so um, one way to sort of lessen the likelihood that you have side effects on that particular day is to space them out and say, well, I'm going to get the flu shot one week and then the COVID shot the next week and the RSV shot after that. And um, that sort of avoids that day after the combination of vaccines being a particularly uh, uncomfortable day. The downside of that, though, is that then you got to go in and get three shots and you got to figure out how to fit that into your schedule 
And for some people, that's more bothersome for them than whatever those side effects are. And so I would just say decide based on your schedule and your wish to avoid those things. For me, I work at the hospital. It's a piece of cake for me to just get a vaccine on any day. And so I'll probably space them out so that I don't have to worry about the side effects as much. Um, but I wouldn't feel at all unsafe to get them all three on the same day if, it, if I had like a drive or something like that to get them. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to check in with Fox News. Amanda's got the headlines. We've got the forecast. I'm even going to. Kurt and Anthony on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. Welcome back to the Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here continuing our discussion now with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Tim Leahy. Uh, and uh, the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline's open. Just hold on for a moment. We'll get to your calls. Uh, Dr. Leahy, I want to ask you, we talked about the vaccines and the effectiveness of vaccines. How effective, if you get COVID-19, are the drugs that you can be prescribed to take? Uh, Plax, Plax, Paxlovid. I knew I was going to screw that up. Paxlovid. I went through the first couple years, maybe two and a half years, without getting COVID. I was fortunate. And then last fall, I did finally get it. Um, and I remember talking to my doctor and she told me Paxlova, there was a couple things that I needed to know was the terrible taste that a lot of people experience, which for some people is a problem and that it can have this, this boomerang type thing where you take it, you get better almost immediately. And then it comes back a few days later. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up opting not to take it. Um, I really kind of went back and forth about it, but I, at least I knew, you know, what I was you know, what it meant, you know, what the drawbacks to it were. How effective is Paxlovid? And are those things like the idea that you might get the the rebound from it? Is that a tiny chance of it or is it more, is it something real? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I think the summary of, of uh, Paxlovid's uh, effectiveness against COVID is meh. And, and just to sum, getting more into the details, there's good data uh, in unvaccinated people. They studied this um, most extensively before vaccines were really common. Uh, the good data in unvaccinated people that if you're at high risk of uh, getting severe COVID via age or immune compromise, that Paxlovid lowers the, the rates of that. That risk is a lot lower if you're vaccinated. And so it makes it a little harder for the drug to lower it even farther. And you know, there's a little bit of signs that maybe it, it lowers it. And so I definitely give it to my uh, most at risk uh, people. But the data on generally protecting other people from from bad uh, manifestations of COVID is weak. And so I use it selectively. You know, uh, as an example, I'm 55 and I'm not immune compromised. And so if I got COVID, I wouldn't take it. Uh, I don't think it's really worth it. Um, but if I had leukemia or if I were 10 years older, I would take it um, to just lower my likelihood of getting into hospital. Um, but I, I, would, I would sort of walk into it thinking, well, that might, might make a difference. I'm not quite as certain as I was in the, in the days before vaccines. I suspect that uh, as the dust clears, we're going to realize that it takes more than the five-day course of Paxlovid to really – get that virus back in a box and, you know, get it to get the message to leave you alone. 
Um, and so when you look at studies of uh, people who are given Paxlovid, you know, somewhere like it depends on the study, but it's often like, you know, 1% or 3% of them will get this rebound thing where they'll feel bad again after the Paxlovid stops and you can check and see that the virus is back in their body. My guess is if they had a 10-day course, you know, that that that, that probably wouldn't happen um, because by then their immune system has also helped put it away. The problem is that doubles the amount of time that this kind of meh drug gets given. And I'm sure Pfizer would really love that, but, uh, but I, I credit them for not pushing that. So, um, so if you're at risk, I think it's a good tool to help uh, protect you. Um, but for most, uh, most people, probably not necessary to take. All right, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I would just like to make a statement um, about, you know, free will on taking the vaccine is you said, I heard you say it's, you know, up to, you know, preference, personal choice. Um, well, my, uh, my better half works at the hospital with you and, uh, she was given a date on when she needed to get a vaccine or lose her job. So she, the date came and she had to take the jab. Otherwise she would lose her, her job. And then the next day, 24 hours later, they lifted the mandate, okay? And, you know, I don't know what happened to personal choice back then, but now you're seeing, you know, personal choice on any type of vaccine. Now, my question to you, in your professional opinion, uh, any vaccine, do you think that um, people that come across the border should be getting vaccines before they enter the public? Because... Uh, you know, you said there's an uptick in tuberculosis or, you know, measles has been eradicated, but people that don't have access to these vaccines back then um, could be carrying these diseases and spreading them across our country um, unchecked. And so your professional opinion, do you believe that these uh, people coming across the border in droves should be uh, vaccinated? All right. Gotcha. Lots of great questions in there, and I'm going to try to uh, address them without, like, giving some weird, long scientific treatise. Um, but so, uh, so you return to the topic of, of, you know, how much personal choice should you have about uh, vaccines? And, you know, the vast majority of people have free will to decide whether they get it. But you're right that there are some uh, employees uh, and others have been required to get the vaccine. I'm among them. Most healthcare workers in the United States um, were required to uh, get the COVID vaccine. And the idea behind this was simple, that that uh, if you have a vaccine that could lower your likelihood of getting infection and you're sitting there face-to-face with our community's most vulnerable people, that it would be nice uh, for you not to spread it to them. And so uh, I'd, I'd say most of us sort of thought, well, gosh, I love that I get early access to a vaccine that I want to uh, keep me from getting sick. And, of course, I don't want to infect my patients. Um, the, the problem is, 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 as I said, though, that people sometimes will react to that requirement and kind of feel like, well, gosh, my free will, and they might prioritize their own free will over, say, a patient's safety. Um, that dynamic was simple, I thought, early when the first wave of vaccines really lowered the likelihood of getting infection uh, substantially and for a while. But the less that effect lasted and the less powerful it was, the the less you know, the less I thought there was a good justification for COVID vaccine mandates. Uh, and in fact, 
many of the leaders at uh, UVM Hospital were eager to let go of the vaccine mandate for a long time. We had lots and lots of decision uh, discussions about this with folks who didn't want to get vaccinated or just generally didn't like the mandate. And uh, our recurrent response was, yeah, we get you. We wish that wasn't there, too. But the federal government required hospitals to require this of the employees. Now, it wasn't 100% required because you could either get the vaccine or do other stuff like you could wear, you know, be required to wear masks more frequently or get testing more frequently. But it was still a, a pain. And so we wanted to let go of the mandate uh, as much as possible. And on the day that the federal government um, uh, uh, said that it was okay to stop it, we were like, we got the details and dropped the mandate as quickly as we could because generally we agreed that it was time to let go of it. And and I would say well past time. Sorry to hear that your um, partner ended up uh, uh, feeling like her arm got twisted right before her arm stopped getting twisted. It's sort of a fluke of timing and also, I have to say, I'm uh, glad that she got the vaccine because it's probably uh, protecting her from bad things. Um, so you mentioned uh, the second topic, which I'll address really much more briefly, which is vaccinations for uh, people who are immigrating to the United States. This is generally required that that immigration does include health screening and there are uh, checks for vaccinations and sometimes blood tests are needed. What is required depends on where you're moving from. And generally speaking, I think those are a good idea to make sure that the likelihood of some contagion is lower in the United States. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Um, I'm 78 years old and uh, have, uh, I think, all five uh, shots and boosters. And then uh, about a month ago, I did contract COVID after going to uh, an elbow-to-elbow wedding reception and uh, I'm over it now. My question is, with the new vaccine, uh, how long should I wait after having contracted COVID to, to uh, get the current vaccine that's available? Yeah, I would definitely wait. You know, you definitely got an immune bump from that case of COVID that you uh, contracted. And so that's going to provide you with protection for some months. I think of the protection that you get from the infection as similar to the protection that you get from the vaccine where, you know, for the first two or three months, you're very unlikely to get infected again. Um, And for, you know, months thereafter, we're still figuring out exactly how long you have some protection from severe disease. Uh, The recommendation is that you uh, wait, say, three months or so uh, before uh, getting another shot. And if you waited six months, that's probably fine, too. Nobody exactly knows, like, where the cutoff, just because that's a nearly impossible study to do. Um, But I would just say, you know, wait at least two or three months and then, you know, at a convenient time, go ahead and get a booster. Because it can be asymptomatic. Oh, I'm sorry. Caller, did you have more? Yeah, just one uh, question. I should get the regular flu shot and perhaps the RSV shot as well? Yes, I would. Given your age, uh, I would get both. Um, and uh, and they uh, are both uh, now available. And in, in, uh, I know that the RSV is uh, their appointments going out in the pharmacies now. Um, I actually haven't. Our clinic has not yet received the flu shot, but that, if it's not there, it's going to be there within days. Because Thank it you. can be asymptomatic. Thanks for calling. Is it important? Should you be tested before you get flu shots or, I mean, the COVID-19 vaccine um, because you could feel good and still have it? Is it is it if you actually have it without symptoms and you get the shot, does that affect anything? <laughs> it's such a great question. You know, there, there definitely are lots of cases of 
of COVID, we learned through the pandemic that you, you don't even know you have it or you, whatever. You had like a couple sniffles and you just didn't think much of it like we all do. And, um, uh, and so it is possible that like, you know, let's say uh, somebody could have had it like in August, not really known. And then now they're, you know, setting up an appointment for a, a COVID shot or whatever day it is that they, they schedule it on a day by day basis, on a person by person basis, the likelihood of that coincidence happening is low enough that it's probably not worth doing the testing. So I figure uh, people like that caller who find out either because of screening, which is not super common anymore, or because they had enough symptoms to get it tested, those are the folks who should delay vaccination. And also one thing I get asked about that's related to this is it's not that it's unsafe to get the vaccination after having had infection recently. It's more just it doesn't do very much. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. Uh, do you think uh, actually that the government has done a good job in COVID communication? And do you think uh, uh, Alex Burson has had a positive impact on the COVID discussion and vaccinations? Boy, COVID communications is such a it's such a sticky wicket, and and I would I would give um, the U.S. government's uh, communications sort of a mixed review. There were examples uh, that were really good of uh, communications. Um, you know that they promulgated the vaccines fairly consistently. Uh, loudly to lots of different communities, funded lots of communications drives, including to hard to reach populations. And so in ways that was great. You know, we had uh, a, a truly historically unprecedented speed of rollout of a vaccine uh, from the time of massive investments and in development to, to roll out to most of the population within a year. And yet, gosh, who can forget some of the cringy mixed communications that people have sent some of them were the result of evolving scientific knowledge. A great example is that uh, Tony Fauci famously said that you don't need a mask. I've said the same thing. And then we learned that you should have a mask. And so I had to totally do a UE on that one. So that's an example of probably unavoidable. But there were also many examples of people just kind of getting out over their skis and sort of thinking, saying confidently what the data didn't quite show yet or using uh, unfortunate language. Um, Tony Fauci, I guess, comes to mind because he was so famous. I hold him in a lot of respect, but I also, since he was in the public eye so much, I also saw him make mistakes. And another was that he said that people who are vaccinated are dead ends for viral transmission. That's probably true for a couple of months after getting a vaccine, but but not entirely true. And also, nobody wants to be called a dead end. So it's just a poorly chosen <laughs> yeah. word. You're a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so uh, th that was an example. I would say that there were lots and lots of uh, elected officials who were very negative toward what has been a historically life-saving vaccine. And I think um, when they uh, stand before uh, St. Peter, they will have some explaining to do. Um, but so um, it, it's been a mixed bag, and I hope for future public health communications, uh, uh, we can learn and sort of say, hey, it's good to have debate, but also we need to deal with our misinformation problem so that people aren't faced with so much confusing information. Dr. Leahy, what are we looking at this fall? I mean, is COVID-19 on the rise again? We're hearing with some countries that it is in certain countries, which has sometimes been a barometer for us. It starts there and then is, is here. Seeing more people walk around with masks than I was a while back. 
Um, and we're t- I know I've read about the triple, which, which has been mentioned here this morning, the triple endemic threat, which is that the actual flu may be much worse this year than it has been for a few years, probably because we're not wearing masks anymore. And then the RSV. Are, what are we looking at this fall? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll tell you what I know so far. Let me put the caveat on it that anybody who tells you with confidence what the future holds is selling you a bill of goods, right? Like it's, it's just a prediction. And <laughs> like, like predicting the stock market, right? Nobody yeah, knows. Absolutely. People will, you know, it's, it's reasonable for people to sort of say, in my experience, this pattern suggests, but you got to see the asterisk on there because, of course, we don't know. Um, what we're seeing is it's very clear that there has been an uptake in the rates of COVID infection uh, around the world, including in the United States. Um, that has read, led to an increase in hospitalizations in the r- recent weeks around the United States. Those increases in hospitalizations have not been large. Um, so, you know, they're, it's important because if, you know, that's you or your family member that's in the hospital and you're one of the thousands of people who are in the hospital around the United States with COVID, that's meaningful and that sucks and I don't want them to experience that. But it's nowhere near the big surges that we have had uh, previously. It's, you know, 50 times smaller uh, curve. Uh, if you squint at the curve, the national curve right now, it looks like it might be plateauing and looking more like some of the smaller bumps that we've had in the last year and a half. Um, but it's, I think, a little early to know for sure if it, you know, you, we've been surprised before where COVID seemed to settle out and then shot off uh, to the races. But I, I look at the curve and I feel optimistic. In relationship to the regular flu, because I, I, I mean, what we're, we're planning on is it's going to kind of settle in like the regular flu. I mean, and a lot of people do get hospitalized with the regular flu in, in relationship to a normal flu year. What, how does that stay? How's COVID now? Are we, are they close or is COVID still higher than the regular flu? Yeah, it's a good way to think of it that, you know, every year we have tens of thousands of United States adults hospitalized with uh, influenza and a smaller number of children. Uh, And, you know, we're accustomed to that. We care about it, but it's not freaking us out, right? Right. We've become accustomed to it. COVID is getting into the similar ballpark of, of, of not only size of number of cases that are are happening, uh, but also the similar patterns of people who are being mostly affected by it. It's mostly older adults, uh, babies, and people who are immune compromised. Um, the the million-dollar question, or really probably the trillion-dollar question is, is COVID going to be able to mutate enough so that it can cause another big surge like it you know, did a couple of times? Uh, so far, we have not seen uh, the beginning of that kind of uh, surge, but it's a little bit early. Uh, and then, you know, Kurt, you asked about influenza and RSV. RSV looks like it causes a small number of cases each year, and it's pretty similar each year and no sign that it's going to be different this year. No big growth with RSV. No, not as far as we can tell. Um, and then influenza, it's, it's a little early to know what kind of a flu year it is. I do suspect that the fact that um, most of us are not wearing masks right now is going to make it so that, you know, there's less, fewer breaks on all three of those. But um, at least uh, as of now, the signs are that we're not seeing a massive upsurge in any of the three, just the usual fall pattern. But we'll see. Um, One of the things I uh, get a lot of, uh, a lot of people talk about the side effects, long-term side effects of the COVID vaccine. 
and it's a lot of data that listeners send me all the time. And I, I want to ask about that. What are we seeing as time goes on with the long-term effects of, of the data of people that receive the vaccine? I think there's no question that it obviously stopped something that was killing thousands of people. And, you know, and you just look at the data. But now... What are we seeing as as things kind of the dust settles, as you say? Are there some long term effects that have been uh, linked to it, or are they where are we at with that? Yeah, so there there are two things. One has to do with uh, long COVID, is part of your question, and the other is the vaccine. The vaccine is sort of the simpler piece of it. So um, there were very rare cases of more severe side effects from the vaccine. Um, uh, adolescent men would get myocarditis that typically was self-limited, but sometimes would lead to hospitalization. So that's a serious thing that nobody wanted to have happen. Fortunately, it's uh, that's not been a signal with the booster vaccine. So uh, a good good um, piece of luck there. Um, th- those those cases of myocarditis were generally speaking not something that lasted forever, but there were a couple. So that's an example of a very rare, long-lasting one. Um, but other long-lasting side effects have actually been extremely uh, uncommon, vanishingly rare. So it looks like a super safe vaccine. Long COVID, not so much. It, it turns out this is something that uh, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about because like getting hit by a drunk driver on the road, what are you going to do? Drive safely, I guess. Um, but long COVID is something where, depending on, on how you uh, define it, you know, maybe 10% of people who contract COVID will have some sort of longer-lasting symptoms. Sometimes that's, you know, you're tired for a while after getting a bad cold, you know, like the kind of thing that we've all experienced. Not such a big deal. But other people are reporting things that are sort of closer to having mononucleosis or or chronic fatigue syndrome where they're just like, it is a huge challenge just to get up and go to work. It's hard to get out of bed, you know, for some people. Yeah, I had mono in college, and for 10 years, every time I got really tired, I got an upset stomach. Yeah, same pattern where people will get like, a little stress and they, they get a setback. It's like, I feel like but, I had mono again. Yeah. Does having, getting the vaccine, does that decrease the risk of the long symptoms? It looks like uh, it, it doesn't have, make a huge difference. You know, like for that period of time that you're less likely to get infected after the vaccine, you know, you're also less likely to get that. But boy, that's a short-lived thing. And the data on whether being vaccinated makes you less likely to get long COVID if you get infected, which, you know, many people can it's pretty mixed, so I, I, I'm not taking that one to the bank. It, it doesn't; it's not worse, but it, uh, it's not consistently clearly better either. Do we ever get some clear data on? There was a lot of talk about people having um, cardiac issues at, with the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Did we ever get some clear data on that? Yeah, that was. Uh, it was clear that in uh, adolescent males, uh, you know, usually in their teens, that was a very small risk that happened, um, but very clear. You know, we. We definitely, the CDC was collecting hundreds of cases. And the, the large majority of those cases, uh, it was um, something that was fairly mild, occasionally led to hospitalization, but not always, and typically resolved. Um, but most people didn't experience that, and most of those people are fine now. Um, but, but, and, and I think most importantly, uh, we're not seeing that with the booster shots. So... What, what do you expect from this long COVID thing? Well, we're still learning about that. What The good news is that if you look at six months in a year, most people have gotten over that. But as you said, Anthony, some people get mono for longer than yeah. that average, and some people get long COVID for much longer. And 
how to deal with that has been really thorny because some people are still incapacitated by their the long-lasting effects of COVID infection, and we don't have a lot of treatment options. But fortunately, there's a lot of research going into it now. Infectious disease specialist, Dr. Tim Leahy, thanks for being on The Morning Drive, as always, and thanks for all the great information. Good to see you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in today. All right, we'll be back. We're going to check in with ABC News. Amanda's got the headlines, and then we're going to be talking uh, tax policy.